Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. Why do some of your marketing campaigns work and others don't? Why do you yourself as a consumer respond a lot more favorably to some types of messages and not others? At the end of the day, what makes us all take our wallets out and pull the trigger on that next purchase? The answer to all those questions, more often than not, comes down to psychology. We are programmed to respond to certain cues, what our peers say about a product, how scarce that product feels, or how likable the brand selling to us appears, in ways that we ourselves often don't fully understand. Today, we have an absolutely fascinating discussion for you on all those triggers that make marketing campaigns work and how you can bring the best of those lessons to your event marketing. We're going to be touching, among other things, on using race testimonials as social proof, early bird pricing and price increases, the role of influencers and celebrity runners, and how you can use freebies to increase your registrations and grow your mailing list. My guest today is Andy Riley. Andy is the CEO of event marketing company EventGrow and the president of race listing site raceplace.com and he is super passionate about the subject of marketing psychology and its foundational importance in developing an effective marketing strategy for your event. Before we go into all that though, I want to give a quick shout out to our podcast sponsor Run Sign Up, the leading all-in-one technology solution for endurance and fundraising events. More than 25,000 in-person, virtual and hybrid events use Run Signups free and integrated solution to save time, grow their events and raise more. Run Signup recently released their next generation email marketing suite and it's absolutely stunning and of course absolutely free for all Run Signup customers. So go check that out and everything else Run Signup can do for your event at runsignup.com. That's runsignup.com. Okay. Now, let's get into this amazing episode. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Panos, thank you for having me. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, it's been a while, actually. What lovely place are you uh, joining from today? I am in sunny San Diego, California. So awesome. life is good. It's about 70 degrees. And uh, yeah, things are good. Excellent. Tell our listeners a little bit about uh, yourself and your background in the industry before we go into um, anything else. So you are a marketer by trade. You run uh, your own dedicated race marketing agency, EventGrow. You're also the man behind um, the race discovery site, RacePlace. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So I guess I've been in the event marketing space for, gosh, probably about 10 years now. Uh, I got my start at Active.com several years ago. And started in sales, making 50 calls a day, calling event directors, telling them that online registration is the new way to go, coming from paper. So learned a lot in that, in that period of time. And then had an opportunity to work with some, some good events there, Spartan Race, a couple other ones that were kind of cutting edge in terms of marketing. And so uh, once, uh, once I left Active, I kind of started my own marketing company called Event Grow. And what we do there is we help you know, events, particularly endurance events, we help them grow participation in their events through digital marketing. So we're running Facebook ads, Instagram ads, uh, Google ads, you know, creating email sequences that help them uh, get more people to the start line. And so that's kind of what I've been focused on the last several years. And in addition to that, I have a company called Race Place, which has been in our family for many, many years. In fact, Race Place started in, in 1986. 
as a magazine. And then we kind of converted it over time uh, from a small you know, website, about 2,000 visits a month to uh, I think now it's 160,000 visits a month. And it's uh, one of the top race calendars in the USA. So all of my stuff's focused on the event space and that's what I like to do. And then uh, personally, I'm a former professional baseball player. That's still a passion of mine. I play on weekends when I can, and I've been playing through the pandemic and that's kind of kept me sane. Awesome. Well, baseball, there's a game I, um, I don't understand, but that's, uh, that's maybe a topic for, uh, for some other chat. Um, <laughs> I should, I should actually uh, say to people listening in, uh, particularly if they're based in the US, that they should check out raceplace.com. I think it's an awesome race discovery site, tons of traffic, very functional. People um, look for races on that site all the time. So make sure your, your race is on there if it's based in the US. So I think it's interesting to do a little bit of um, of a kind of like a background to this episode. Give give our listeners a little bit of context because I've known you for uh, for a little while. I haven't been in this industry for as long as you have, but I, I I've known you for a while. And we were catching up the other day, and I was saying, you know, we should do some um, some marketing topics for the podcast. And we're thinking, you know, maybe we do Facebook ads or Google ads, uh, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into in the future. But interestingly, we sort of arrived at this idea of firstly doing an ep- a, a podcast episode on the fundamentals of uh, marketing psychology, and you got really interested, really interested in this in this idea. And I know you feel very, very uh, passionate about this topic, sort of you know the foundational importance of marketing psychology. So, why don't you tell um, our listeners to begin with what do we mean? when we say, you know, when we speak of marketing psychology and why is understanding marketing psychology such an important thing in order to be successful with, with your event marketing? When I first got started in, in intrigued by, by in marketing, it's really, it really at its core is why do people buy stuff? So I've, I've always been intrigued by that. Like why, why do people make the decision? Like ultimately, what are the things that lead people to make a decision to pull their credit card out and and purchase a product, purchase a service, and in 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 this case, register for an event. And so, really, a lot of that comes down to, and any purchasing decision comes down to kind of the psychology and how our brains are wired. And so, really, at its root, you know, what we're going to talk about today are uh, a couple of things that that trigger influencing decisions to purchase. And so I just find that fascinating personally. Like I can't get enough of that, this particular topic, because it's, it, it's, uh, it's a lot deeper than just put a promotion out there and, and somebody purchase. It really helps you understand if you're a marketer, understanding the psychology of human beings really helps you understand craft and craft promotions that are more successful. And so that's kind of the, 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 the root of, you know, psychology, why it's important um, it's it's so that we're very thoughtful about the promotions that we're putting out there, and we're basing a lot of those promotions in the way that the the kind of the human brain works. That's really why it's important, and and you know in the end, the promotions are more effective that way. So that's also important as well. We want to get we want to run profitable promotions, right? We don't just want to run you know discounts willy nilly and and have no strategy. There's there's a strategy behind it, and so it's really kind of digging into that. And actually, when you were saying, you know, like understanding how the brain works from a marketing point of view, we're sort of like talking lizard brain stuff here, right? Not not sort of like, you know, being aware of what's happening, right? We're talking about all those subtle triggers where 
without you even understanding it, you know, like through creating urgency, being likable, all of this stuff we're going to get into, you know, it sort of appeals to you at a level that that you as a consumer, you don't even understand what's happening, right? I mean, not in a bad way. I'm, it, it just it just appeals to some of the stuff that are so fundamental to you as a human being. Yeah, it's just kind of part of our nature. And yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, this stuff is is happening whether we know it or not. I mean, it, it's it's happening in our brains. And so we're going to talk about the the really key triggers, the key triggers that influence people's decisions to actually purchase an item, how we can use those triggers to our advantage as marketers to get people in particular to sign up for events. From what I understand, the this concept of psychological triggers is based on the work of um, Robert Cialdini. Am I am I pronouncing that correctly? That's correct. A book he wrote on um, influence, which I think is a pretty seminal book. I didn't know about it, but I looked up the reviews on Amazon, and and you know, like people think it's the Bible or something. <laughs> so it's it's this guy that has influenced these concepts, right? All the, and the six triggers we're going to be talking about. Exactly. Yeah, Robert Cialdini is he's considered kind of the 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 leading, I guess, social scientist in in the field of influence. But his book is something every marketer should read. It's very interesting, even if you're you're not a marketer, just to understand why people are influenced. He's a Ameri- a famous American psychologist, but he's really the kind of the leading social scientist around around influence, which is what we're going to talk about today influence in regards to why people are influenced to purchase things. One thing I want to mention before we get into these six triggers is one of the reasons why Robert Cialdini went in and created this book is was to actually protect consumers from using these triggers in a way that's deceptive. Mm-hmm. So these triggers we'll talk about today, they're, talk, they're, they're triggers that show how you influence others to purchase things or influence others to do what you want them to do. So obviously you have to be careful with that because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of scams that use these triggers um, to try to deceive people, to get them into, you know, to buy their product, to click this link, whatever, whatever it may be. So I want to mention that because today what we're going to focus on is how to use these in a positive way to get people to register for your race, which we know in our industry is a good thing. Or maybe get somebody to donate more to your, you know, uh, fundraising campaign that you're running for your particular event, or if it's just a straight fundraising campaign. So we're going to focus on those things. However, be aware that um, these exact triggers can be used uh, in the complete opposite direction in the in the complete uh, wrong way. Yeah, and actually, I would take that one step further. Obviously, we're going to be examining those from the perspective of you know, like using them to just improve your your marketing copy, for instance, you know, your creatives, you know, working on some on some pricing strategies that work. There's nothing particularly nefarious here, you know, like sort of like early bird is one of those strategies, right? I mean, it's it's not voodoo or anything. And actually, I would say, again, going back to the example of the early bird, that a lot of the things we're going to be talking about. Lots of people already do. They just do not understand or, you know, they, they don't standardize the theory behind what they do. People use discounts. They use limited time offers. That's the kinds of things we're going to be talking about, but we're just going to be like dissecting them and breaking them down a little bit. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the, t- a lot of the stuff, price increases, a lot of these things are already used and they're only simply used because they're effective. We're actually going to help people understand if they don't already, why they're effective which will hopefully expand 
people's usage of them. It'll hopefully also create new ideas of other ways they can use that knowledge with those particular things or with new things. So I think that's an important thing is, is you're right. You, you do it already. It works, but why does it work? And how can we leverage that for something new or different or how can we make it better? Exactly. Okay. We're going to be going through the triggers uh, one by one, just for everyone's summary. The six triggers are, and I think there was a seventh added in, in a newer edition of the book, but sort of the six triggers that Robert Cialdini first identified and analyzed were reciprocity, commitment and consistency, social proof, big one we're going to get into, authority, scarcity, and likability. So we're going to be going into all of those with some amazing concrete examples you came up with to sort of like illustrate how those work. And let's start with reciprocity. So how does the psychology of, of reciprocity work? Reciprocity in a, in a very simple, explainable way, basically it's we always try to repay what somebody has gifted us. So if somebody said, if somebody gives us a compliment or somebody provides us with a gift, what the the psychology around that is we are we always feel as though we need to repay them in some way shape or form for f- something equivalent or greater through what they have gifted us so this is rooted in our psychology so the examples i mentioned you know before uh to expand upon those like if somebody buys us dinner we we feel the need to buy them you know that kind of meal back in return if somebody provides you in in-store food samples. We we recognize this at at Costco, I know maybe you don't have uh, Costco in the UK, but just large stores that offer uh free food samples. What they're doing is they're actually triggering a little bit of reciprocity. If we accept it, if we accept that sample, then we feel the need to return them something whether it's purchase their product or give them time to listen to their pitch. Another example would be when an author provides you a free copy of a book. It says free copy, we'll pay for, you know, we'll pay for shipping. We feel the need to give them something back. Maybe we enter their mailing list um, or we take them up on that offer with free shipping and we pay shipping. And now we're part of their their marketing funnel. So really we don't want to face and, and in social situations, we you recognize this. You don't want to face the awkwardness of not repaying or returning their favor if they say something to you or provide you with uh, some form of value or gift. And so the key thing to remember is once we accept this gift, once we say yes to this gift, that's when reciprocity takes its power because that's when it's in full effect. Once we've accepted this gift, now this other person is, we're going to feel a need to provide them something kind of in return. And so that's the core example of reciprocity. You'll see this everywhere. Um, It could be as simple as somebody providing you with a compliment. Um, This can be used to gain that person to try to gain your influence over you. Um, And so that's kind of the, some of the real world examples of how it's used. Now, if we bring this down to the the event level. Let's think about, let's talk about, if you don't mind, how we can use this in event marketing and how we use it at our agency for all events that we that we work with. Mm-hmm. The first example would be very effective, would be to offer a free training plan in exchange for an email address. So a lot of events already have coaches that they work with. They might have training plans that they've created. Something as simple as a PDF 
uh, or a Google Docs, Excel sheet, something of that form that has a legitimate training plan on it, something that's valuable for a runner or for an athlete that they can use to get ready for your event. Um, not only is it a good way to help tie to you know a promotion to get people to sign up, but using and triggering reciprocity, when you provide that free training plan, you're almost immediately and always going to get an email address at a high signup rate. So at a very basic level, like you might not be getting a registration, but how valuable is a new email address to you? Well, it's pretty valuable, especially, you know, considering that the only way to kind of grow your email list is, uh, you know, if you bring new people into your event, that's number one. But uh, the second best way to grow your email list is to run a promotion like that, where you offer something free in exchange for an email address. Now you can start a relationship with that person. And ultimately, you can start to convert that person to become an actual member or to become uh, you know, somebody that, per- that buys from you. So that's a great example. And, and that's, we use that constantly with a, you know, like a pop-up on your website or an exit intent that offers a training plan. You create an image for the training plan and then and then uh, start that that relationship with them. So that's the first one. The second one would be offering a discount code in exchange for some for someone joining your mailing list or liking your social media account. You can offer up, you know, as part of a promotion, you know, something like an exclusive discount. And if they sign up for that discount, then they give you their email address. They get value in return. Now they're in your marketing ecosystem, right? So it's kind of low hanging fruit, but we're always trying to think about ways we can grow the email list. And that's another really good way to do it, to use reciprocity with it. Another one would be offering a free t-shirt upon purchase of registration. So these are called premiums in the marketing world. Uh, we've seen these in a lot of different ways, but free t-shirt upon purchase of registration or free booklet you know, with XYZ content with purchase of item. When we offer these free premiums, a lot of times this is triggering reciprocity in a way because it's it's offering them something for free and that's kind of improving your level of influence around them making a decision or a, a larger decision to purchase the product. So it's kind of tied in together and uh, this has worked really well, especially if it's something that's of value that they they appreciate. So that's the third example. And then the final example would be offering a chance to win a free entry in exchange for the completion of your survey. This is a great one. Now, we're always looking for, this is actually tying in with social proof, which we'll talk about later, how we collect social proof. But if you give people uh, a chance to win a free entry, typically what they'll do is they'll go ahead and a lot more people will take your survey. So we found up to 20% more people will take the survey if you offer some form of a gift uh, or potential to even win a gift, not even a gift itself, but potential to even win a gift people in return will return the favor by taking your four-minute survey they might not have taken. So that data and that information that you get from that survey are extremely valuable. However, the gift, the front end, the reciprocity, if we, if we hadn't offered that, we might not get as many people that take us up on that. Those are four like concrete ways that you can use it in, with your event that we've had success with. But remember, it's simply providing value to somebody as a gift or something to create an ongoing relationship, they'll re- try to return that value in return to you in some way, shape, or form, whether it's giving you an email, signing up for your event, you know, or taking a survey. 
So those are a couple of examples for that one. Right. And and it doesn't necessarily have to be like a quid pro quo, right? It, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, we'll give you that so you give us something else back. This This can also probably work if you just freely give people something, they'll just also put themselves in a position to then want to find a way to repay you somehow, right? Exactly. We're triggered in our head to provide to to try to repay people that that provide us value. The key is a lot of times is people will create, they talk about gated content. They'll create paywalls. They'll create a lot of things that get up in front of somebody. The way that we open up our ecosystem and we get more people in our marketing ecosystem is to actually provide things for free. It might sound well, mm, that's not really going to be cost effective. Well, a free training plan, that's not going to cost it. So like there are things you have already you could provide for free, like whether it's a training plan or some type of PDF or some type of program. And really it's it's marketing cost. You you could provide that for free on the front end. And if you're actually providing something with value, it's a good deal for both parties. Now they're going to now reciprocity kicks in and they're going to give you something back. They're probably going to give you, like I said, an email address or something like that. And so really, this is the psychology behind what you see out there, whether it's a premium or stuff like that. This is actually what's happening in event world and then also in social situations. Do you think, uh, sort of like taking this a step further, that if I have identified like a local celebrity or like a local influencer who are also runners, let's say, and you know, let's say I reach out to them and, and, and I send them a, a comp entry, I tell them, here's a free entry for you that they sort of may feel obliged then to know, you know, to give me like a shout out for the event or something like that, just to repay me. Well, it's not guaranteed that they'll provide you that, but you've put yourself in a position to have a better chance at getting that because of reciprocity, because you, and you, you initially engaged with value, gave them a gift of sorts. They'll be much higher inclined to provide you value if it was the other way around. Right. It's, 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 it sounds now you're like, okay, and I hear it that way. I'm like, it, now it just sounds simple. It's like if I just went and asked somebody to give me something, like, no, get at it. There's no chance. Like, I'm not, I'm not just going to give you that. But if I provide them with a gift first that's actually of value, then they're, they have a higher chance of, of providing that back to me. And so there's actually, there's some equality here though in this, right? Because if, there, if, we're, if we're actually providing value, true value, then this can be an equitable transaction, right? If we're if we're not providing value and something's nefarious on the back end and it's a bad product or service, that's very different. But we're we're talking about events that actually provide value and, and things that we can do. That's kind of how that works. Right. Because I, I guess the whole principle here is that you give something up that is valued by the other party in a different way than the thing you hope to receive from that other party, right? So you, you give something up that, you know, let's say a comp entry that's not super important to you, or you give up a free training plan, and then you expect the other party to repay you in something that is then valuable to you. Yeah, exactly. We're internally, we're looking at and we're saying, okay, what's the cost of our, of our training plan? And we're saying, well, we worked with a coach and they created it and we paid them a flat fee, but now we kind of own that plan. Well, to us, there's no cost that's already paid for, but to the runner, they might pay $30 for that. Right, they, you might go out, and especially if it's a training plan that's tailored to your event. For example, I work with the Hospital Hill Run, and we're working with a training a coach to create a hill training plan specifically for hills for that race. So there's a lot of value for the runner, but you know we've paid him a flat fee. 
very small flat fee to create that plan. So to us, it's not an expensive thing, but when we offer it to them, there is that value there. And so there's a value exchange. And then what we're using that is we're, we're actually tying that to a registration. We're saying, if you sign up by a certain date, we're going to give you the Hill training plan for free. So we're kind of trying to use this in, in uh, this this together. Um, and I think, like I said, if there's an equity of, of value exchange uh, or equal kind of value exchange, then this can be a benefit for both parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great example with uh, with the Hospital Hill run. And I think now that we're going over the examples, people are going to be, you know, like having flashbacks and stuff because, you know, as you say, these things happen to people all the time, right? I mean, people offer you free stuff online in order to get your email address or, you know, like in order to get you to sign up for stuff all the time. So that sort of like clarifies the principle behind it. Trigger number two is um, commitment and consistency. So what is that all about? Commitment and consistency is it's we have a desire to be consistent with what we've already said or done in the past. Really, that's that's what it is. So we we have a desire to be consistent with what we have already said or done in the past. Once we've put something into words and we've put it out publicly, we feel the pressure to follow through with that commitment. That's really in essence what it is. So examples, I just mentioned one, but another example would be you post on social media that you're running your first half marathon in four months. Your social commitment will force kind of others and yourself to stay accountable and consistent with what you've said. We are always trying to stay accountable and consistent with what we've said. Uh, Another example would be you've made it public knowledge that you have a goal to lose weight, let's say 10, 20 pounds in, in in a period of time to become healthier. Well, your habits your habits will now steer your actions towards kind of getting getting closer to that goal and not away from it, especially because you've put it out there publicly. And so there's this, this psychological thing going on in the background of we're trying to stay consistent with what we've said or done. When we put it out publicly, it becomes even stronger because then it's not just, we're not just talking to ourselves, we're talking to others and others will actually hold us accountable to those commitments as well, which is another powerful piece of it. In job interviews, when you, one of the ways this this works is you, let's say you state that you have certain commitments and values, and then you have examples that would back those things up. Well, a, a good job interviewer will, like a company will then see those values and see potentially where those values line up with their company. And they'll actually try to They'll ask you about how your how your values line up with kind of your actions, and a good company will use the psychological trigger of commitment and consistency to then tie those values to their company values. So they'll say, "I see that you have these values," and then they'll kind of align those things with their company values because it's kind of what you said. And so there's really the way that influencers and marketers can use this is, let's say, for example, people we know people are publicly saying that they want to lose weight. For the new year, right? So, how could this influence like copy or our ads for the new year? And so, you could say things like, if people are trying to stay consistent with their with their act with what they say, and we know they want to lose weight, say something like, "Are you looking to reach your personal best in 2022?" This this could be for an event, for a running event, cycling event. Take on a new challenge by signing up for our event. So once again, are you looking to reach your personal best in 2022? So we're making an assumption here that it's January and people are trying to lose weight. We're making an assumption that people are talking about this. And you see this on social media, right? If you follow people on social media and runners, 
they'll they're pretty vocal about what it is that their maybe some of their goals are, you know, whether it's a PR or personal best or like I said, weight loss. And so those assumptions and things we're seeing that can introduce what we're saying in our copy. That's one piece. Another one could be if you've surveyed your audience and you get back from your survey that a certain percentage of your audience want to say they will donate to your events charity or a higher percentage than maybe you thought. If you have data and information to show that people are willing to say that they're willing to donate more to a charity, well, then you could say, you know, commit to giving back in 2022, raise money for the children's, you know, foundation with us. Or 30% of you said that you'd be willing to donate more to charity. I'm just kind of willy nilly and going now, you know, help us out this year, become a fundraiser, make your miles count. Right. So once somebody commits, language out there to public, they want to stay consistent with that language. So then now when we're writing our advertising copy, we think about what have people said in the past or currently, what are they saying that they want to stay consistent with? These are noble things. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to get fit. I'm trying to PR. Yes, I would be interested in fundraising more. Right? These are all good things. So the way we use that to get them to buy is we call them on those things. Not in a way that's calling them out necessarily. Hey, you said you wanted to lose weight. What are you doing? Sign up for our race. But hey, new to running, looking at you know getting fit instead of saying losing weight. Maybe are you new to running, looking at getting fit this year? Become a part of our training plan and get 15% off with for our race. So we're kind of tying this consistency message of or keeping them consistent with what they said into our copy. And I think copy is probably the most natural place to do this. You could do it in the creative, the actual image itself or video, you could overlay it. But I think copy is the most powerful way to help people stay consistent and committed to what they said. Yeah. And actually, I guess you did this on purpose there. The example you gave sort of combines the reciprocity and the commitment principle together. You're saying, you know, you're advertising to people, you know, around the new year, you're telling them, looking to keep fit or, you know, like become fitter this year, join the race and get a free training plan kind of thing. And then you're, you know, you're bringing in the, the value gift reciprocity angle to it as well. Yeah. And and, and when you can combine it with those, it's it's even more powerful because you have two working versus just one. Excellent. Okay. Now the third one, I think we're going to be spending some time on this one. It's it's super powerful. I mean, you know, we we all appreciate that. You know, there's a reason why there's testimonials and reviews and everything all over the web. And you know, why to be honest, even even like Amazon made it so far because of the reason people go and check reviews up there. So the third trigger is social proof. Most people would have some understanding of what that means, but why don't you sort of like spell it out for us a little bit uh, a little bit more? Yeah, social proof is is I'd say it's the most powerful one on this list, especially in this day and age with obviously the our ability to search very quickly and find out um, a lot of different things about a lot of businesses. But social proof is things like reviews, things like testimonials. Basically, it's information that other consumers just like us have left reviews about online that give us an indication as to the quality of that product or service. What it's really about, though, is we never want to be the first person or first someone to try something. We don't want to be the first. We don't want to be let down. We don't want to waste our money. 
we want good products and services. And we're very fearful about losing things, losing our money, losing our time. We're actually more fearful about that than we are joyous about gaining something equivalent. We'll talk about that one later. But really, in effect, that's that's what social proof comes down to. And so about almost nine out of 10 consumers will read online reviews before they buy something. I mean, just think about it. Like I've searched Yelp. The last several restaurants that my wife and I have booked will go online. And especially if it's a new restaurant, you know, we're, we're looking up the reviews. And I'm sure you've had a similar experience. You do it for pretty much everything. You look up restaurants, you look up, you know, dental offices, you look up events. Because if you haven't tried these products yet, you're sure as hell not going to look at this and say, well, I'm just going to sign up, right? How can I gain some more information from my peers to make sure that I know not only am I not the first, but that this is a good thing. This is a good product or service. That's social proof. And and that's one of the reasons it's so powerful is because when there's more people that validate it, it increases its perceived value in our minds and it decreases the amount of loss, potential loss that we could factor in. So like the more value that gets assigned to these products and services, it kind of has a the reverse effect on how much, well, we're not going to lose our money. Nine out of 10 consumers will will look at reviews online before they buy something. And seven out of 10 consumers will pay attention to reviews, specifically ones written in the last month or so in the last term. So that's, that's, a, that's a key thing, right? Nine out of 10 people are looking at reviews online and seven out of 10 are looking at recent reviews within a month or so from the previous month. So that's key for us to know that's across the board, but you could assume that's that's with that's with events. So we know social proof is important. We just talked about it. In our minds, the psychology around it, more people validate it, the more value it has in our head, better chance that we're going to buy it. So the question now is, how do we collect social proof for our event? And then how do we use it to drive more sales? First way, probably the best way is surveys. So asking your runners for an adding an open-ended question into your runner survey is an incredibly powerful way to gain testimonials and pieces of social proof that then you can use on different parts of your marketing. So that's why one of the reasons why we always attach a gift reciprocity to our survey is because we know if we get 20% more people taking our survey, now we just got potentially 15, 10, 9% more social proof. And we know social proof is probably the most powerful thing that we can use. Now we're going to take those testimonials and ask those individuals if it's okay if we use those testimonials on our website. So the key thing about social proof is collecting it and then displaying it, collecting it and displaying. So collecting it in the surveys, that's a great place to collect it. Next place that a lot of people don't leverage right now, I think there's a lot of events that don't think that, um, I think people know and events know that people look online before they buy stuff, but I just don't think that they look at these race review sites that are out there in our space and add as much value to them as I think they probably deserve. No site is too small. Now, with race review sites and race websites, I have a little knowledge around this with race place. They have great SEO. So when you search for events, sometimes, often the event, if you, unless you searched for the event name perfectly, oftentimes the race website, race calendar or race review site, not always the same thing, but similar, 
they'll pop up before you. They'll actually get the click before your event gets the click. So now what's happening on their site? Well, if it's a race review site, people are finding out information about your event from other reviews. Now, that's not even, they actually searched for your event and found it that way. If they're actually sourcing race review sites, which a lot of people are, then they're going to these sites. And so trying to work with these race review sites and encourage your audience to review your race on those sites. There's a couple ways that you could do it. You could exchange your audience a discount code. Like for example, when the event's over, you're going to send your survey out, get your, get your quality information there. And then maybe offer up a discount code for somebody to review your race on, let's say, I'm not going to use any race review site names because I don't want to pick favorites, but let's just say, you know, there's a certain race review site out there. You can go and provide your audience a discount if they leave a review on that site. Because now if they've left a review on that site, there's an extra little nugget of social proof. And you could do this every season. So we talked about recent reviews being important. If you offer $10 off your race for the next year in exchange for a review, that's a good exchange because how many people saw that review and signed up as a result of it? So the discount code is, is null because ultimately as more and more people hit that site and these race review sites are growing, they're not getting smaller. I don't see them getting any smaller anytime soon. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. So the more social proof that are, that's on your race review site, the more social proof you're going to be able to use. And ultimately that's going to drive you sales. So those are two ways to kind of get that type of proof where you can use this social proof. That's powerful is first is on your website. I always try to have those testimonials aligned and recent, and then I'll display those on the homepage. So you see these on a lot of a lot of websites, not just event websites. You'll see testimonials. They're basically displaying social proof to gain more influence and validity and add validity to their product or service. It's the same with events. You can have uh, a lot of these recent reviews that came in on your survey, and you can display those on your website pending you've gotten approval from obviously the person that gave the review. But let's say you have that. You can show a list of maybe six to eight to 10 reviews on your website right on your homepage. So as people are scanning that are new, they're like, what is this? I don't know if this is any good. Well, a really powerful way to increase value, perceived value of your product is to put those reviews right on your website. You can also take them right off of these race review sites. So once again, if you have approval from that person, you get the proper approvals, you can take a race review review screenshot it, turn it into text and put it on your site. Now you have a third party review, which can be really powerful too. It didn't even come directly from you. You can use the race websites logo if they're okay with it. I'm sure they would be exposure for them and say, look, people are reviewing this on other sites talking about us. People see that that's extremely powerful and will help them in their purchasing decision to get closer to the buy button versus further away from it. It's probably the most powerful thing. So website, number one. Number two would be your ad copy and your creative. So when you have, let's say, a piece of information from your review that says 90, for example, this was from a, a marathon we work with. We found that 93% of the past runners would recommend our race to their friends. So we found that interesting. We're like, oh, well, that's that's great. Nearly every single person that did this race would recommend it to their friend. How can we use that 
to drive sales. So what we did was, is in our actual Facebook ad copy that we wrote, we said, run XYZ marathon and come see why 93% of past runners recommend this race, right? So that's, that's data from our survey that we use in our ads. And so we're, we're, we're using this psychological trigger of social proof in our actual ad copy and in our, in our creative. You could also use come see why or see why we're rated 4.9 out of five stars on XYZ race review site.com. So it might sound like tacky to do that, but just remember like you're triggering psychologically something in their head that's saying this has value. Look what other people are saying. The most powerful thing that can happen, I think, in marketing to get people to buy stuff is when other people talk about you. It's not so we're not actually talking about our we're talking about ourselves, but we're 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 showing you what other people are saying about us. So that social proof, that community validation is extremely, extremely powerful. And I'd put it in your Facebook ad copy. You could put it on your website. Uh, you can put it definitely, you could put it in your email copy. You know, you could have a, a nugget that lives on there for all of your emails, you know, see why 93% of uh, people recommend us. There's some social proof out there you can find and you can use. I would always think about integrating that into your campaigns and then collecting that through your survey and through those, those websites. One aspect of social marketing I think is worth briefly touching on before we move on from social proof is peer-to-peer referrals. That's when one of your participants refers a friend or a family member to sign up for your race. In 2021, referrals of this kind drove a massive 7% of all registrations on RunSignUp, and it's an area RunSignUp has invested and continues to invest in very heavily through its industry-leading referral rewards platform. With referral rewards, you can incentivize your participants to want to sign up more and more people for your race, to earn rewards for themselves and for the people they sign up. For example, you can promote team participation by offering every team of over, say, 25 participants that sign up for your race a private porta potty. Isn't that neat? Or you can offer automated discounts and refunds to all team members once a team meets a predetermined threshold size. There's so many clever things you can do around referral rewards, and with Run Signups automated referral reward system, you can be up and running with your referral campaigns in minutes. So, if you want to learn more about Run Signups, referral rewards, and turning your top supporters into ambassadors for your event, make sure to visit runsignup.com. That's runsignup.com. Okay, now let's get back to Andy Riley and our very interesting discussion on marketing psychology. Next up, more social proof. One other thing I find with race reviews very interesting and and persuading for me sort of like as a runner is that when I go on a site, whether it's whether it's the race's website or a third-party website, and I read through someone's experience, I don't know whether it's a storytelling thing, a social proof thing, but I sort of like it's easier for me to imagine what it would be to be running that race, right? When someone was saying, you know, yeah, I ran through that race. People were cheering on. The atmosphere was amazing. The course was super beautiful. You sort of like almost put yourself in the position of that person writing the review and you get a little bit of of that good feeling you get from someone else experiencing that. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful. When somebody else experiences it and, and talks about it, they're marketing for you. When somebody else can talk about you and validate you, that's incredibly powerful from an influence perspective that you have. 
And so now it's the question is how do we use that? How do we how do we get more of that? And then how do we use it? And that's why I mentioned you just consistently need to have asking questions with your audience or your survey using those race reviews. And like a lot of race directors will tell me, well, I, I know my people love our race. And I'm like, do, can you show it? Can you actually show it? Because if you can't show it, then it's hard to leverage it. You're basically leveraging like a bunch of brand equity that you've built up. So you need to peel that brand equity out, go look for it on race review sites, and then go and use that and talk about it. One other thing, by the way, um, that comes to mind now, now that we're talking about social proof, I'm sure you've seen it as a marketer. I'm, I'm not, I'm not as like, as a consumer, it feels a little bit sort of like gray area to me, but you must have seen that little widget or service you can get. Uh, I know some people in the industry actually have them on their websites and I'm, I'm not a big fan of it because I know what's happening behind the scenes where, you know, you go on the website and you have a little pop-up like bottom left of the website or something that tells you, you know, like Dave from Michigan just purchased this, you know, like every every two seconds you're on the site, right? And obviously Dave from Michigan didn't purchase that at that moment, but you get that constant validation when you're on the site. I've seen it on race websites actually as well, where you would say Louise from whatever joined the race. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's in fact, one of those tools is called proof. It's called, I think it's proof.com. It might, they might've changed it, but uh, that's, it's a tool that's leveraging this psychological trigger, social proof to show. Yeah. It, it, I don't even think it's real time. I mean, I think that a lot of them are delayed. Maybe somebody bought a day ago and it's like, I know spot from this place, but that's all it's doing. It's all it's doing is accentuating social proof and trying to use social proof to validate your product or service even more. And it's doing it right. It's a smart tool because it's doing it right at the point of purchase. You know, just like an Amazon review when it's right at the point of purchase, that's, that's powerful. That's why I always say, put your, put those reviews on your website, on your homepage. So it's kind of like doing that, I think would be a better use of it. Will that tool work on your website? You could test it. It'll probably, it could help with conversion. I think it, it can look a little tacky. Um, it could, you know, if you set it up the wrong way, it could backfire, <laughs> right? Um, but that's what that tool is leveraging. I don't want to necessarily sort of like give people a shout out or something, but I should say that um, uh, RaceCheck, which is um, one of those like review sites, uh, actually very recently pivoted as a company. Uh, that's RaceCheck.com. It's, it's a little bit more popular in the UK, I think. So they pivoted around just this concept of like social proof and, and feedback management. And, and they have a widget you can put on your website where they show the reviews they collect from people on their site, on your website. And I think they also did some kind of like research and they think that, that it basically increases the probability of someone registering for your race by like 20% or something. Just, you know, like they have an actual widget there that pops up and they say, you know, this race is rated 4.9 on race check or something. And you can put that widget on your site and it would help people sort of like sign up. So it's, you know, apparently it, it's a whole standalone product now that, that you can get, which probably means that it works quite well. Yeah. A lot of those, a lot of those products, and it sounds like that one, it will leverage this principle to help with conversion. And, and when you put it, like I said, when you put that stuff at the point of purchase, if you think about it, if I'm on the edge and I see two messages, one that this is 4.9 out of five, and I hadn't seen that. And then I see that, you know, XYZ person left this, you know, great review about it. 
that might just be what pushes me over. And so if you multiply that by how many consumers hit your page or your funnel, then yeah, it can have a very material impact on, on your sales. Yeah. Okay, super. Let's move on. Uh, I think we covered social proof quite um, extensively. Lots of examples there from you on collecting social proof and displaying it. So it's not good just, you know, like collecting it. You need to sort of put it everywhere, as you said, email, ad copy, creative, website, everywhere. So uh, trigger number four, I think we're on now, authority, seems to me a little bit sort of like akin to social proof. So what sort of lever are you pulling there with authority? Yeah, this one's interesting. Authority is, you know, at a, at a very young age, we were, were taught to respect figures of authority. So police officers, you know, a judge, a doctor, you know, authority figures are, are people that we respect and really obey um, because they're in authority. So it's something that we've, we've learned at a very young age. And as you mentioned, this, this rule, you could call it kind of tends to overlap with, with social proof in a way. But it's it's different in the sense of the level of authority a person possesses. The higher level of authority a person possesses, the more influence they have on us making decisions. So this doesn't perfectly correlate to events, but the, the way I would say you could leverage this is if you have a celebrity, a current former authority figure athlete attending your event, you could promote that person's authority to influence others to purchase your event. And so it does two things. One, because that person has authority and a following, that's going to increase people's perception of your event's value and they're going to sign up. In addition to that, it also kind of increases social proof. So it's, it, it's a little bit of a dual factor here. You're increasing the social proof because somebody saw somebody with authority doing your event or signing up for your event. And, and, and in addition, the, the authority aspect gets people to to kind of sign up. So if you have any celebrities, if you have the, the, the simple way to use this, is if you have any of those folks that are going to be coming to your event, signing up for your event, coming to your fundraiser, being part of it, then um, maybe reach out to them, you know, offer them a gift, reciprocity, <laughs> and get them to, uh, to help market for you. Because um, you know that they're a person of authority and people are going to see that and it's going to validate you more. So how can we work with that person of authority that's already going to be at our event? Um, and this would happen pre-event is reaching out to their social media team or whoever it may be and seeing if they're willing to share a post, seeing if they're willing to do you know a simple meet and greet, seeing if they're willing to do a quick testimonial at the event where they could talk about why they do the event, why it's important to them and capturing that, maybe using that on your website, using that in a video maybe using that to further validate your event the following season, um, knowing that that could be kind of an evergreen piece. So really in a simple, simple way, it's, it's kind of, like I said, overlaps with social proof, but think about who in authority comes to your event and try to work with that person. And actually I would, I would probably um, take that one step further because, because you mentioned video there, you know, I always thought when we put on events way, way back uh, a few years now, investing in quality photography, right? Investing in quality video. I feel that in itself may actually come under the umbrella of authority, right? You're actually sort of like bigging up your event a little bit, right? When you have like a super awesome video or like amazing photography or like a great trailer with a little drone or something going over, the, you know, you're sort of like 
conveying to people that you're that kind of high-quality, high-caliber event that would use that kind of media, right? Are you not? Yeah, absolutely. When you use stuff like that, it's going to increase kind of the, the perceived value um, around the event. It's going to make it look more substantial. And in people's minds, that's only going to help with the way that they look at it. Like I see <laughs> in this day and age, if, if it's not 1080p video at least, then it's a problem. Because then it, it looks, this is kind of a side note, but it looks, it doesn't look as quality. It doesn't, it's, it's a little grainy. The footage is grainy. It's not acceptable. Like you have the opportunity. Everyone has an iPhone. My iPhone can take 4k footage. I think as far back as the iPhone 11 can take 4k. So we have the tools to create quality looking content. Let's do that. That's going to increase the value around the event and make it look more professional. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I I I really feel that sort of like branding comes under this, right? I mean, you need to have a good, professional, high quality brand. And the other thing, which I think is particularly, you know, I I have tons of example, uh, tons of examples from um, trail the the trail running scene. I used to have people putting on trail races that I knew, who, for instance, some of the smarter uh, folks among them. They will go out big sponsors like Salomon, like North Face, in that kind of thing, like you know, like La Sportiva, all of the all of the big trail running sponsors, um, without actually asking much of the sponsor, simply in exchange of the kind of like implied endorsement that that having a high profile sponsor gives to your event, right? Because imagine being like a local trail race on your first or second year trying to. Um, trying to make a difference and stand out, you know, like having Salomon as a sponsor, people don't care how much cash you got out of it. But, you know, like if I was entering a race and I saw Salomon in the roster of, of sponsors, I would think this race is, is big time, right? I mean, to have a sponsor like that. Yeah. I guess that, like, like you said before, a good way to, to put that would be the brand authority. If you work with more brands that have a level of authority established, that's only going to increase your level of established authority in the mind of the consumer, which will ultimately make more of them purchase more often. There's a couple of industry awards for running races and other races. Sort of, do you think going after those is a good use of time and resources just to earn that additional authority to be able to say, you know, our race was voted top 50 marathons in the US or something like that? Yes, I do. I think it, it, in fact, one of the races we work with got voted for, I think it was best marathon or half marathon in Kansas city. And I'm not exactly sure, but I believe our race director went out and connected with the, I think it was a, a like a, it used to be a magazine. It was like a media organization. I think they're now kind of a blog and submitted for that, put their hat in the ring, so to speak. And ended up winning twice. So to the effect of how hard is it for us to enter our hat into the ring, if it's not very difficult and it's not extremely time consuming, then like that social proof and authority that we might gain on the background that we can use is, is well worth it. And it lasts for a bit. If you get an award, even if it's from a third-party media organization that's not huge, you can reference that award. That'll probably last you social proof-wise for at least two years. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. If I say we were the 2020 uh, pandemic flash forward of pandemics, everything's crazy, but we, you know, we won the 2020 best race in UK award 
from XYZ media organization. People couldn't help but see that and say, interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's, that validates you a little bit more. So I think it is worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say probably uh, pandemic years don't count. I think you can go as far <laughs> back as maybe a uh, 2018 and it would feel, uh, you know, as recent to people, like nothing happened 2020, 2021. So, you know, you can, you can go back a few years. Although I, I take it, as you were mentioning earlier with reviews as well, that recency counts, right? You post something, you know, we were like the 2009 best marathon, you know, people are going to think that's not particularly relevant anymore. Yeah. We all, we all do the pandemic calculations in our head around years and we're like, uh, so yeah, I guess, I guess we all have an opportunity to start fresh. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So, um, trigger number five, another one people would be familiar with sort of empirically from just doing stuff is, um, scarcity. Tell us a little bit about that and how that works to influence, uh, our purchasing decisions. I'd say this is the next most important one to social proof. And a lot of us are very, are familiar with scarcity, but it really, it's just the perception that products are more attractive when their availability is limited. So when they're, when a product's or services availability is scarce or limited, the price or rush to participate in buying that product goes up. This is a really effective tool to drive sales because it, it applies to not only the quantity of a product, but also the timing and price of its availability. We'll talk a little bit about that. But the example would be when, a, when an event has a limited amount of half marathon spots left, the remaining spots become scarce. So if you're, if you're saying, look, we, you know, we have a, we have a cap and we're going to sell out those remaining spots will become scarce and they'll become more attractive. So your sales will probably start to increase against those spots. You could probably increase the price in addition to that, and they'll still sell because they're more scarce. So this is scarcity in our minds. That's how it's working kind of as a psych psychology is if something is scarce, its value starts to go up. Right. If something has limited, its value goes up. So that's really scarcity. But what's really important about scarcity is to understand something else. I'm going to try to kind of keep this succinct because I don't want this to go too highbrow on, on psychology stuff. But scarcity is really it's a it's a powerful cognitive bias we all have. And it what it's called is within scarcity is called loss aversion. So in its very simple form, loss aversion is I want to kind of say this correctly, but it's the pain we feel in losing the opportunity at a hundred dollar discount is greater than the happiness we feel of winning a hundred dollars. So the pain we feel of, of, of losing something versus gaining the same thing of equivalent value is always greater. So we're, what we're in effect, what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to protect ourselves from losing versus gaining the same amount. We're always trying to do that. So we're, and this could go back to a lot of other things like survival. Um, you know, what we have is helping us currently survive. So they talk about survive and then thrive, not thrive and survive. Survival is let's keep what we currently have before we try to go source new things. So just remember that's what loss aversion is. And, and loss aversion is really what makes it powerful. Um, what makes scarcity powerful, that principle. That's a little bit um, like FOMO, right? Isn't that sort of like the principle behind it, the, the, the fear of missing out on something? Yeah, because what you're fearing of missing out is you're, you're losing the opportunity to, to gain. And that, 
that's kind of triggering, I guess, a bit of loss aversion. It's kind of the flip of loss aversion. Normally it's like, you know, save money or I, you know, basically I don't want to lose what I currently have. The way to flip that is say, no, now you're losing the opportunity at massive gains or massive or whatever it may be. So the key word is loss. And, and I'll get into that, but it's focusing on like loss and then people save. So helping people keep what they currently have. This this goes right into price increases. So the first one we'll talk about is pricing. These always work. Everyone, I think, can agree that price increases work. Why do they work? Well, because there's scarcity around a deadline that at a certain point in time, the price is going to go up. So you're going to lose the opportunity to get the price at a lower rate. And this triggers kind of scarcity and loss aversion is that we don't want to miss the opportunity to get the price at a lower rate. We don't want to lose $10 when that price goes up because that's how we look at it. We're going to lose money. And so with price increases, that's the reason that they work. That's kind of the psychology behind it. But what I suggest people do is you leverage price increases by creating anywhere from three to four to six price increases in your schedule because they're natural built-in scarcity plays. Price increases, what's also very important is there's a date. So the the way that scarcity triggers, there has to be a date in which this opportunity goes away. If there's not a date... They create urgency, basically, right? Yeah. There has to be a date with urgency against it. And so these are natural built-in things. And they're also great because you're not actually discounting. Right? A lot of people say, I don't like the discount. Okay. Understood. Well, then you should probably create more than two or one price increase because a price increase schedule, very few times you're going to get a bunch of pushback from runners because once you set your schedule and you start to stay consistent with what you said, then people understand and they'll earmark that date and they'll get signed up before it. Um, no discount needed. Just use language, save, save $10, you know, beat the price increase, you know, don't lose this opportunity to save, you know, so these are the type of language we're, we're losing, we're using because we know kind of how loss aversion works. And so another thing with price increases is you want to start marketing your price increases on all your channels, at least 10 days before the increase. Why? This ensures that you can get messaging to the market and so that they know that you're building scarcity with them. Right, you're you're actually building it out and getting it in their minds that on this certain date this opportunity goes away, and so to just send out one email or to do it for a day, you're not saturating your audience with with scarcity, and you need to do it much sooner. Oftentimes, I, I see it too late. We'll probably send five to six emails about a price increase um, in advance. A couple of reasons: one. Only 20% of our email list opens the email. So a lot of people aren't even seeing the first price increase email, right? So how many do we need to send? I'd say, you know, between five and seven, that's kind of a, you know, a way where we say we've, we've gotten the scarcity message out for our price increase. Then we also do it with Facebook ads and with social posts um, more than maybe some people might think that you need to do. And actually, I, I would I would actually say to the objection you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, this perception that price increases or pricing schedules might be viewed as giving a discount. Actually, I would say it's almost like the flip side of that. I would say that having a schedule where the price increases, you know, people don't have to register at the very inflated 
price of the last tier, right? What that does is push people to register earlier at a price which could have been your standard price, so to speak, right? So essentially, rather than consider the cheaper prices as a discount, I would probably think of the the later signing up prices as just a super premium that, you know, even if no one pays, I'm happy for them to register earlier at sort of like my equivalent standard price because I'm creating that urgency. Right. Yeah. And you're creating that momentum. It's always good to, when event directors are out there trying to figure out how many medals they need to buy and they're trying to kind of uh, figure out their finances and map those out, it's always nice for them to have more signups early on. So even if you're getting it at a lower rate, um, you're, you know, if it's just a simple price increase, you're not, it's not a discount necessarily. So you're not like turning into a discounting brand perceptually and you're getting people in the door earlier and sooner and you're doing it and you're, you're leveraging scarcity. You're leveraging this psychological principle that works against that price increase. And so it's, it's definitely a good thing. And I, anytime I sit down with an event and I look at it and it's an event that doesn't like the discount, I, that's the first thing I look at is like, what are we doing with price increases? And how are we leveraging those? And sometimes it's, we only have one price. And then immediately when we implement this, and I saw this at Active, they did a study with Chicago Marathon. Not only did the price increase generate more registrations, but it generated more revenue because they were their average price for the event went up. You can imagine if you started the pricing, you, you know, you, let's say you had two prices and one is 60 and 70. If you have a price increase, you can start at 45 and end at 80. Right. And like we know people are going to sign up closer to the event, the late stragglers. So the margin you can make also too from price increases goes up. It's not only just the quantity of registrations that goes up, but also the margin that you can make can go up because you've you've done it over the course of a schedule. Yeah, I can I can certainly believe that. And there's a reason why people I think Run Sign Up had some similar data on this. I mean, th- there's a reason why pricing tiers and early birds and stuff on average work. To you, again, going back to the scarcity point, and there's lots of bargain hunters out there, including in in races, right? Someone sees the early bird and they're thinking, oh, what an amazing opportunity, right? They're thinking, I'm saving all that much money. They don't have any absolute sense of what this race is worth or whatever. What they know is that some people get triggered by thinking, oh, I'm buying something for, you know, like $45 when the, you know, the ultimate price, which they presume is the price. Is like $80. So they're sort of like feeling happy for themselves that they they saved $35. They didn't save anything. They just, you know, they registered at the $45 price point. But again, it triggers them because they they feel like they're getting a bargain out of this. Yeah, yeah. They're saving money. And that's one of the ways that you can use this, I think, is is have those, have have several price increases set up in advance of your event, you know, scale those up and then leverage those. Uh, marketing messages within 10, sometimes even you can do 14 days out, but 10 days out from your price increase so that you can further kind of get to the market this message around really what it is scarcity. I guess the one thing about scarcity, and I've seen it with a couple of brands, is that if you create scarcity publicly, you know, you say, you know, there's only 100 spots left. I I see lots of events do that. And I think everyone should do that. You know, when you're down to your like, you know, last 10% or 5% of registrations, be public about that. But sometimes I, th- I think events might be using that and, and brands do it more generally as a ploy tactically. And sometimes you see them, you know, like they go out, they say, oh, there's only a hundred spots left. And then, you know, maybe they're taken up and then they say, oh, you know, we're extending this limited tight offer, you know, and then they do two, three times. You're thinking, 
I mean, come on, how much of a, limit, of a limited time offer was this to begin with? And then you felt a little bit cheated by, you know, you sort of like see behind the, behind the curtains a little bit what's happening. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Scarcity, as I said before, can be triggered on quantity or time or both. So in that case, that would be a quantity scarcity play. So it'd be like, there's only 100 spots left. I would use that sparingly and I would stay consistent with the timing in which that goes away. I, you know, that one I don't love to use too much because I feel like that one gets overplayed. Like you said, like consumers are smart, like runners are smart. Like when they, when they see you say a hundred spots left and then you somehow magically, you know, 500 spots open after that because the race director sees, Oh, that was great. We got a big push. Like you can't do that that often at all because consumers will learn that you're using this tactic in a way that's not honest. It's not straightforward. It's see, it feels funny, right? That part that feels so like that quantity one, you know, I would, I would suggest if you really have a certain amount of spots left, then promote that. But if you're using that and you're, you're, you're inflating that number, I think that one can go sideways pretty quickly with your audience. Yeah. I really do. I think I would use it very sparingly and I would use it towards the end of your event so that that's, it's true. Like you're, you're really are getting close to, to spots, not being there. The other one that I would focus on using is time-based scarcity. So, you know, it would be for all your promotions to make sure people feel as though you're being honest. The first and best thing you can do is make sure that every single promotion that you run has an end date. This is incredibly important. I see sometimes people will extend their promotion or extend their price increase. I would also be very careful to do that very often because it gets into this territory we're talking about, which is, was this ever really going to end on this date? Did I always have more time? And I think that'll devalue the future promotion. So for us, we want to make them feel the pain of losing the opportunity, the very thing loss aversion is trying to protect. We want to make them feel that pain and the way we do that is we really truly end the deal day we said we were going to end it. So if it ends on Friday the 1st and somebody tries to use that code on the 2nd, not happening. Because we want them to feel that pain and then when they feel that pain, which is the last the first, the thing they're trying to avoid, they say, "Wow, they're actually legit." Like I really the next time they put a promo out, like I should probably sign up in the window that they said because I'm going to miss my opportunity and I I don't want to miss my opportunity to save. So that's, that's one of the biggest things I see is try not to extend, make sure you stay consistent with your dates of when these promotions end, use countdown timers, clocks, whatever you want, but just keep it consistent and make sure it actually ends and they feel the pain if they didn't get it. Yeah, absolutely. We have, um, whenever I drive to my, uh, parents-in-law, there's a, there's a little store next to them, which is like a furniture store. And, uh, my wife and I, we have this joke, like last four or five years we we passed we, we sort of like drive past it's always on a closing down sale like you know <laughs> perpetually <laughs> for yeah. the last four or five years so you know you can imagine this kind of thing you know you get a little bit cynical about that kind of thing when when you see this thing you know like, oh you know like shutting down these things have to go and then you know they keep replenishing stock all the time moving on to our last trigger now likability what is that about likability is we simply like to buy stuff from people that we like or, th or products or, or brands that we like. There's a couple of things that increase likability. So we like people who are like us. 
This is just by nature. So people that look like us, people that act like us, we just naturally like and assign more likability, you could say, to those those types of people. An example would be what's taught in sales is to mimic, to mimic mm-hmm. your your customer or your prospect. Mimicking is really increasing likability because you're trying to mimic their actions. You're trying to seem like them. You're trying to act like them, which in their mind would increase their likability for you, which would increase your level of influence. So that's that's one piece. And then the other piece is what increases, determines likability is positive interactions with somebody or with an organization. So just positive, consistent interactions with them will increase your trust of them, increase your likability of them. Um, likability is also increased by people who want to help. So people that want to help with you know, different initiatives, you know, brands that want to help with donations. You know, if we see that there's a brand that's uh, surrounded uh, a lot of their content and messaging around a particular donation effort or fundraising effort, we will start to like that brand more because of the values that they have and what they're aligned with. So that'll increase likability and then praising. So we like people that compliment us. This kind of ties back to the first one, reciprocity. People that provide compliments, they don't even necessarily need to be genuine to have the effect of likability. So um, uh, compliments, now obviously this is one, when you're thinking about events and brands, you have to be careful, but how can an event use this? I'd say if you have a likable personality with your event, let's say a uh, influencer, somebody that has a hold on, that looks like your customer, that your customer like, maybe they're a coach, a trainer somebody that maybe you're running coach, triathlon coach, and they're already perceived as likable via their Instagram following, via their connectivity with that particular. Try to work with that person because the more personalities like that that you can align your brand with, they're actually going to, that likability is going to come over to you and your brand. So think about those influencers, those likable personalities that are already out there. They might already be working with you. So how can you do more content opportunities with them, maybe some shared Instagram stories or a content series where they write uh, or do uh, a couple uh, training pieces where they show people how to you know, work out during, uh, during downtime, like a pandemic or something like that, where you can, you can take that personality and kind of assign it into your, your brand. Another way is like give compliments to your audience. You know, like on social media, a lot of times I see, you know, runners will tag uh, events, they'll do metal Mondays. Like if you have a social media person, which I think most events have like provide, you know, a heart uh, to their Instagram posts, like double, like the post, say great job, great work. You know, anything that you're tagged in by a runner and they're, they're doing something that's, you know, aspirational, like come back at them, provide them a compliment. They'll immediately assign more likability to your brand. Like when a brand reaches down to a consumer, it's a really powerful thing, especially if they're complimenting them. Don't make it seem disingenuous, right? I mean, just be be genuine about it. You know, if they're losing weight or doing something, then, you know, you just drop a post in there with a couple emojis and, and compliment them. And I think that'll help your uh, likability for your brand. And then uh, really just the tone of voice, you know, if you act like your customers, like the stuff you're posting on social media, this goes back to the tone and and the brand, like 
when you see a, a social media page or an event page on, let's say, Facebook, and they're promoting content like you know running training and stuff that's native to that audience, that's going to increase likability because you're 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 telling your audience we're like you, we know you, we know what you like, and we're putting that content out. We're not just putting stuff that we think is good. So really, just align your content pillars. Whether it's Tuesday we do training videos, and you know Thursday we do motivational quotes. Like, make sure that that content is stuff your audience actually likes. And by nature, if you're doing that, then it's increasing your likability because they see that you're talking to them, right? You're 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 speaking to them and not to somebody else. And then uh, a great easy way on social for likability is just reshare their posts. Like if they post something about uh, a training or something like that, or even something about your event, like you can just, there's a lot of apps on Instagram that you can reshare. You can just reshare their post. You can reshare their story, which is a, a cool thing to do. Like you can add a, you know, if, if they do an Instagram story, you can reshare that and that's going to increase kind of their, their likability for your event. So those are some simple ways. A lot of these things are on social media because these things in, involve act, uh, interacting with consumers directly. Um, but those are a couple ways that, you know, your team can, can, can work on likability. Okay, so let me um, end on a hopefully not a too controversial question, but speaking of familiarity here and sort of mimicking your audience and aligning yourself with your, with your audience and your runners, one thing that came to mind is politics. What do you think about events getting political and actually you know, taking up causes? Let's say you're in a part of the world which is blue or red or whatever. Does it pay? Is it risky to just go out and take a position, take a stance on things and and try and make your event sort of overtly political in some things that your audience and your community cares about? Or is that too dangerous of of a strategy? I can't speak on the worldview on politics. I can speak kind of on the US. If I'm inside of that organization and I'm having I'm in those marketing meetings thinking about a political statement or stance, like I would avoid it very simply uh, because it's extremely divided right now in probably a lot of places in the world, definitely in the US. And so when you're talking about political statements, when you're talking about taking sides on on political stuff, like your audience is already so divided. And it's all it's also what I see on social is so divisive. And a lot of the platforms are unfortunately using the divisiveness to serve more divisiveness via their algorithm to those same folks. So I think it's a kind of a toxic situation with how divisive it is and, and what a lot of these online platforms are doing to perpetuate that. So if I'm an event, I would say, is it important to take a stand for what you believe in? Yes. How much of that you share from a political standpoint, I think you have to be very careful. I would err on the side of extreme caution. And I would really try to focus on things that we all can align behind. And I think with events, it's maybe easier to do that because if if you have a charity you're working with, you know, that's something we all can get behind and something that we're not going to have a discussion about that's going to create division. You remember you're trying to create more unity and and really bring joy to your audience in a time that's really confusing. So I'd say I would avoid that and I'd focus on some of those other things that, you know, are important to you that can bring people together. 
Yeah, I think I agree with that. No politics. It's uh, super dangerous. I mean, you know, what can happen is you can get really close to the 10% of your audience who feels very passionate about this. And then you're playing a very, very risky game navigating that stuff and staying consistent. And then it, it can snowball to something really terrible. Uh, really quickly. But I was interested in, in in having your take on this because in my mind, some of that falls under likability, right? I mean, you're saying, you know, you want to you wanna mimic your audience. You want to sort of like behave as they do, sort of like, you know, get down to their level. And people often feel very passionately about politics and also, you know, events are local and certain communities feel very differently than other communities about some politics. So, you know, it might be tempting for people to get down there, but I think I agree with you. Better stay out of that. Okay. So this has been, we've exhausted all six triggers. Uh, I think there's been so many tips from you there. Uh, it's been uh, really great. And I thank you very, very much for all this. How can people uh, reach out to you to event grow if they need any help with their marketing or with their strategizing and the promoting of the race? How can they do that? Well, first, let me just say thanks, Panos, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, I think I love what you're doing here with the show and covering these different topics. So thank you for that. And, and people can find me via marketing at eventgrow.com. That's, that's the email that you can reach me at. And I'm always open to talk to new events about potentially helping them grow their race. If you're looking for a marketing company to help you with a part of your marketing or all of your marketing, especially digital marketing, then you, we should definitely chat. Eventgrow.com is the website. We work specifically with right now with mostly with endurance events. And so it's a space I've been in. I, I understand it well, and we know how to speak that language. And so if, if, if you're interested, give me a, shoot me an email and, and we can chat. Awesome. And hopefully we can uh, get you back on the podcast uh, soon to talk uh, Facebook ads and other stuff. I know you're very, uh, very good, very detailed on that. So maybe you do us the favor and you come back and you share some tips with us on running successful Facebook ads from, from all your experience working with events. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. And there's, there's several topics that would definitely be one of them that I would love to jump into. Awesome. Okay, Andy, thank you very, very much for uh, everything today. It's been super enlightening to go into all of this stuff. Very interesting topic, the, the psychology of marketing and persuasion and selling to people. I want to thank you again for your time. We're going to see you soon. Thank you, Panos. Thanks for the time. And I want to thank everyone else listening in, and we'll see you guys on our next podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode on marketing psychology with my guest, EventGrow CEO, Andy Riley. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your questions about marketing, sponsorships, or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe or leave a review on your favorite player. And also check out the podcast back catalog for more great content like this. Until our next episode, take care and keep putting on amazing races.